Thanks, Sam. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is a Bible, a blue Bible on the ground near you, and you can find Acts 2, um, the end of Acts 2 on page 911 in, uh, in the blue church Bible. If you're uh, if you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks, we are in a series called The Way of Jesus, talking about looking at what does it look like to follow Jesus uh, faithfully with hope and with realism in the world that we live in. And um, I've kind of uh, been referencing a book called Faith for Exiles that is uh, summarizing some research that was done um, on the faith practices of, of uh, people, younger adults who grew up in Christian homes. And... Um, what this research has done is really fascinating to me. Um, I hope it's fascinating to you, because <laughs> I keep referencing it. But what they found is that uh, for um, young adults, roughly the age uh, 18 to 35 years old, who grew up in Christian homes, uh, several years down the road, what does their faith look like now? And they fall roughly into four groups. And the four groups are these, that about 22% of those people they call prodigals, people who, have, um, no, who would no longer consider themselves Christians. And then the next group, the nomads, 30%, are people who would still call themselves Christians and yet uh, aren't involved in the life of a church, um, aren't following Jesus in any active, intentional way. The third group, cultural Christians or habitual churchgoers. In the United States, this is the largest group, 38%. Um, these are people who would still self-identify as, as Christians and are uh, involved in the life of a church um, with some regularity, and yet aren't intentionally seeking to uh, have their lives transformed by Jesus. One way to think about this is that they're doing church, but they're not doing biblical Christianity. But then the final group, the 10%, is this fascinating group of people that um, the, this, this organization, the Barna Group, calls Resilient Disciples. And these are people who are living in a time and a place when uh, the pressure of the culture is against them and their faith is actually not being shattered but is actually being strengthened and they are flourishing and thriving uh, in the cultural moment that we live in. And so what we've been doing over these, uh, in this series is looking at the five practices. So if you look at these four groups of people, uh, what you want to ask then is what are, the, what are the healthy people doing? What are the resilient people doing that's keeping their faith alive and active? And they found that there are five practices and so over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about experiencing the presence of God. And we talked last week about how the gospel changes everything by shaping our identity. We're working our way counterclockwise through this graphic now. <laughs> so this morning, what we're talking about is the church. And uh, one of the counterintuitive realities in a culture that is increasingly driven by kind of uh, the you-do-you mindset where we are all the center of our own world, um, this group of disciples, resilient disciples, are people who are increasingly leaning into the life of the church and discovering that the church, the corporate gathering of God's people, both on Sunday mornings, but the scattered people of God throughout the week, is central to their spiritual health. So um, really what I'm, uh, kind of the big picture this morning, if you could put up the next slide, is this. When loneliness attacks us and we distrust authority, resilient disciples ground themselves in the community of God's people. 
When loneliness attacks us and we distrust authority, resilient disciples ground themselves in the community of God's people. So if you would, if you're willing and able, I want to invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word this morning. I'm going to read Acts 2, starting at verse 42. This is a description of of what happens after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and uh, Jesus has told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and he ascends into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit comes on them on the day of Pentecost. And this is the result, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, as we come to this passage, uh, I'm mindful of the many ways that you have used uh, the church in my life to uh, bless me, strengthen me, encourage me, and God, I am I'm eager to see you do much more in our church than my words can possibly accomplish this morning. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present in our midst, that you would make uh, these words alive to us. Would you form Jesus more fully in us as we uh, engage with your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, please. It is not good to be alone. Would you agree with that statement? It is not good to be alone. There are a lot of things in life that are very difficult to do on your own. Like playing tennis. It's got to be really hard to play tennis. I'm not a tennis player. I don't know why that just struck me at this point. Moving furniture, hard to do on your, on your own. Rock climbing is not a good idea on your own. Lots of things that are not good to do alone. You know what else is not good to do on your own? Life. Uh, It is not good to do life alone. Um, As you read in the earliest chapters of the Bible, God creates everything that exists. And there's this refrain over and over again that says, God, God says it was good, it was good, it was good. But there's one thing that is not good. It is not good, God says, for the human race to be alone. I, uh, so I want to ask you this. Who are you doing life with? Who are you doing life with? We live in a time where we're surrounded by people and yet many of us feel ourselves to be increasingly isolated. I heard a story from a, uh, a pastor, uh, sort of acquaintance of mine, who's the pastor of a large church in Florida. And uh, he talked about coming out of, out of the service uh, one Sunday morning, and uh, there were some people gathering there, and, um, 
And the friend said to this woman, you have to tell the pastor your story. And uh, she said, this Sunday is actually my last Sunday here. She's moving away. She's moving out of of town. But she said, uh, I have to tell you the story of coming to this church for the first time 10 years ago. She said, I'd been transferred by my job. I was new in this community. I knew nobody in town. And so I came to church because I was looking for friends. And she says, as I came into your church, I, 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 I could tell right away that this was a warm and welcoming church, and, and I would see friends catching up with friends, but I could never get into the community, and it felt like everybody was connected but me. And I kept coming back, and she said that she began trying different sections. You know, this section of the room we know is definitely not as friendly. Like, this is the friendly section, right? Uh, I don't know, but she said she began as a big church and she began testing out different sections and thinking, you know, eventually she'll find the, the, friendly, the friendly people. And on her 10th visit to church, to that church, she drives in, she's driving into church that morning knowing nobody else in town and just so overwhelmingly lonely that she said in frustration, she began just calling out in anger and saying, God, I'm going to church. What do you want from me? I'm so lonely. And she, uh, she gathered with God's people that morning. And she said she could hear as she came in, the people in the row behind her, obviously, in a, some sort of a small group together. And they were greeting each other and catching up on their week and talking about um, going to lunch together after church. And she thought to herself, this is the last time. I'm not going to sit through this again. And... Uh, and so as the band began to play and as they began to gather for worship, she was surprised when somebody tapped her on the shoulder and stuck out a hand and introduced themselves and said, why don't you come with us to lunch after church today? And 10 years later, she said to her pastor on her last Sunday there, she said, you know, it wasn't that long after that that I became a Christian. The people of God gather her in and made the gospel credible. It is not good for us to be alone. Life is too hard to be isolated from people. We long for community. And yet, the fact is, the reality is, in the world that we live in in 2020, many of us are increasingly isolated, increasingly lonely. I read this week that adults today are twice as, lonely to say, uh, twice as likely to say that they are lonely than compared with just 10 years ago. 10 years ago is not that long ago. (laughs) And yet we're twice as lonely today than we were 10 years ago. One in three millennials, 18 to 35 year olds, say that they don't have a single friend who knows them well. One third of young adults. The bottom line is this, a lonely person is a hurting person. A person who is isolated is a person who is Um, more prone to anxiety, more prone to depression. A person who is isolated from human interaction is a person who is not growing. In fact, the only thing that they are likely to be growing in is unhealth. And so it's not really surprising to learn that that 10% of resilient disciples, people who are living with faith and hope in our world, uh, and who are growing and thriving in our cultural moment, are people who have found deep community, when loneliness attacks, and when we distrust authority, resilient disciples 
have grounded themselves in the community of God's people. Uh, interesting statistics here. Um, when, they, when they kind of pressed in these resilient disciples, uh, they found that resilient disciples overwhelmingly say, I am connected to a community of Christians. Um, they also said this. Next one, please. Uh, oh, I missed one. Could you go back? Show me the one I didn't miss. <laughs> there we go. The church is a place where I feel I belong. Uh, fascinating here. Uh, for resilient disciples, church is not just a place they show up. It's not like going to the movie theater. They say it's a place of connection. It's a place of belonging. And yet the third thing here, next one, is this. Resilient disciples said there are two signposts on the way to community. One is aspirational and the other is reality-based. Now those are some fancy words, but what does it mean? Aspirational means they have a very high view of the church. When you look at what the church uh, is, how the church is described in Acts 2, like, that's great. I would love to go to a church like that. Unfortunately, I'm stuck with the, the one I have. <laughs> um, there is this, this high you know, view of God's people. Um, and resilient disciples have this aspirational view. The church is, is, is God's instrument in the world. It's incredible. And yet, it's also based in reality. Church is messy. Church is hard. Uh, it's a both and. It's not an either or. I read a story uh, not long ago uh, of something that happened uh, in the Pacific Northwest several years ago, uh, a couple years back. That, um, there were researchers posted in sort of an outlying research uh, station in the Pacific Northwest. And due to, I guess, a lack of hunting, predators in this area, wolves, have become increasingly aggressive. And two researchers one day uh, ventured out and only a couple hundred yards away from their research station found themselves surrounded by wolves. And these wolves began to work together to herd them and to hunt them. And only a couple hundred yards away from safety, they were in fear for their life. And so these two researchers found long tree limbs and standing back to back using the tree limbs to fend off the wolves were able to work their way back to the safety of their research community. And of course the story of that was spread throughout the camp, but apparently not um, thoroughly enough because the next day a young intern, 22 years old, there for the summer, uh, ventured out alone, never to return. His body was found partially consumed and it was later determined that he had been killed by a pack of wolves. And the significant thing about this was that this was the first time in a hundred years that a human had been killed by wolves in North America. It is not good to be alone. Together we can work to fend off anything <laughs> that comes our way. But it is not good to be alone. You know, the earliest Christians those described in the book of Acts, knew what it was like to live in a world where there was outside dangerous pressure pushing in on them. Uh, they lived in a world where the wolves of the Roman Empire were pushing in on them, threatening them, and they knew that they could not do it alone. So the question is, what about us? What about us? Are we going to lean into God's solution to human loneliness? Uh, the community of God's people, the church? 
as the pressure of the culture many of us feel is pushing in on us? Are we going to push back? Are we going to run away? Or are we going to learn to live together? There's an African proverb that says this, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, take someone with you. I kind of hate that. I want to go fast, really qu- far really quickly. <laughs> if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, take someone with you. You dare not go alone. Do you know what this kind of resilient Christian knows? This Christian knows it is not good to to be alone. Life is too difficult to live in isolation. And so resilient disciples are people who, how do you get community? You're going to have to, in the world that we live in, give up some measure of your personal freedom and autonomy. But it is not good for us to be alone. So I want to show you this morning three realities that we see in the life of of the early church here in Acts 2. And the first is this, the primacy of worship uh, the, the, the primacy of worship. Worship is the primary kind of event, gathering, uh, activity in the life of the early church, and it has to be said, in the, the church throughout all time. And by worship, I don't mean, and this is kind of my pet peeve, so I'm not going to get on the hobby horse here, but when I say worship, I do not, please, I do not mean singing. Um, what does it say in verse 42? It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church, the people of God, as we gather weekly around biblical teaching, the sacraments, fellowship, being together, and prayer, that is what we mean when we talk about worship. But it's fascinating to me, this week I noticed this, that it says they devoted themselves to worship. Uh, We live in a world, we live in a time when um, we have access to all sorts of teaching, don't we? Uh, you, you, like, why are you here this morning, really? <laughs> uh, you can listen to far better teaching than you will ever receive at Resurrection OC for free in the comfort of your own bed, if you want. Uh, we have access to all sorts of teaching, and what we don't have is devotion to it. Um, through the abundance of technology, we can access almost anything. And yet, oftentimes, the abundance, the lack of scarcity, leads to complacency. Do we love the presence of God as, he, uh, as we encounter him in worship? One of the clear messages of the Bible is that God is uniquely present with his people as we gather to worship together. In uh, Matthew 18, Jesus says, When two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. In Psalm 84, the psalmist says, Just one day in your house is better than a thousand elsewhere, O God. Over and over again, God promises that he will be present with his people as we gather to worship. Yes, God is everywhere, and yet in a mysterious and yet tangible way, he is uniquely present as we gather for biblical teaching, for fellowship, Uh, for the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the prayers. The point of of, of what I'm kind of driving at is this. Uh, True community has to gather around something. Any community has a unique gathering, a rallying cry, something that you gather around. And yet increasingly we live in a world where... uh, 
the reality is that there is a sort of anti-community. There's a sort of anti-community, and it, it's not a new concept. Um, it goes all the way back to the opening chapters of the Bible. In, in, uh, in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, in Genesis 2, God says, let us make man in our image, human beings. And yet when um, Adam and Eve rebel against God and they, they divorce God and they depart God and say, we're not going to center our lives around God, uh, this sort of anti-community begins to emerge. And you see this clearly in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where they, uh, the people gather together and they say almost the same thing as God himself said. They say, uh, come let us make a name for ourselves. We're going to build something. But it's not the, uh, the communal God, the triune God, giving life to expanding the community of glory and of love by inviting others in. It's the human race saying, let's mutually use each other to make ourselves individually great. It's like this dark hole of community. It's uh, anti-community. David Brooks, the columnist and author in his most recent book, The Second Mountain, he uses the word tribalism to describe this sort of gathering. And uh, what, what he says is, 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 is exactly what the Bible is driving at here. The community is about uh, people dr uh, gathering together around something that they hold in common. But tribalism is people gathered together around something that they hate in common. And so tribalism is the dark hole of community. He says this, tribalism seeks out easy categories in which some people are good and others are bad. Tribalists seek out certainty to conquer their feelings of unbearable doubt. They seek out war, political or actual, as a way to give life meaning. Tribalism seems like a way to foster the bonds of community, but it is actually the dark twin of community. Tribalism is based on scarcity, where the ends justify the means. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. The promise of the age that we live in is that, you know, this age that's been called a secular age, is that life will always get better. And as we progress as human beings, we will enjoy more and more comfort, we will enjoy more and more freedom, we will enjoy more and more autonomy, we will enjoy more and more um, equality. And um, the thing that has kind of, prom like kind of held out this promise is the internet. This time when anybody can be connected. And through technology and through the internet, you can be connected with anybody and anyone. And there was a time when it felt like you know, technology was going to usher us into this life of community, uh, this life of comfort, and this life of freedom, where we are no longer dependent on God. And yet it seems like in the last few years, the internet is like turning on us. I mean, do you remember how long ago was it when the Arab Spring was sweeping across the Middle East and it seemed like the internet was going to usher democracy into, uh, into the Middle East? And now it seems like it's all backfiring on us. And the thing that promised to connect people is making us feel isolated and it's contributing to tribalism because fringe extremists, you know, you can now find somebody who agrees with you on everything. No matter how obscure, you know, if you like Swedish death metal while petting cats, like there's a group for that on the internet, right? <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but what, what that means is that, I mean, 
Why is there this like resurgence of white nationalism in our country? Because now these 6,000 people who are pursuing that interest have found each other. And they can work together and coordinate from the comfort of their mother's basements where they you know, live and, and kind of put on rallies to do great, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. You understand what I'm saying. What if this global freakout moment that it feels like we are living through as a culture is actually the moment when our culture is beginning to realize that the myth of inevitable progress and increasing comfort is failing. And we're beginning to freak out uh, because technology that we thought would assist us is actually failing us. We all long for community. We all long to be known and cared for and loved. I mean, every TV show is about this. Depending on how old you are, you might think of Cheers or Friends or The New Girl. They're all about communities of people that just show up and love each other. We all long for that, don't we? And yet the New Testament holds out the promise of the church. The New Testament tells us that relational community is the goal that the gospel drives us towards. And resilient disciples live with hope and realism in a world that, where the pressure is pressing down on them because they know that they cannot do this alone. I was struck by the profound simplicity of that this week. I have a friend who's a pastor who was in Kuala Lumpur. There was a, a conference, an enormous conference, where uh, leaders of the church in China were... Um, meeting really to, together with leaders of the Western Church to talk up together about what does it look like to do ministry in our time. You can't do that in China, and so the ministry leaders from China fly to Kuala Lumpur. And a friend of mine who was there um, shared this on Facebook. He said that... Um, he shared how convicted he was meeting these Chinese Christians and, and one of the observations he made is that uh, these are people who go to church every week knowing that they might be arrested. And the reason that they might not go to church one week is because they showed up at church and the government had locked them out. And when they are locked out of their church buildings, and um, you might maybe have seen this, that uh, a Chinese pastor was sentenced to nine years in prison recently. Uh, for conducting illegal business oper uh, operations. When that happens, they meet together in small groups. They continue to meet together. Why? Because they know that they are living in a culture where the pressure is pressing down on them and they cannot do it alone. They don't go to church because they have to. They go to church because they need to, because it's, it's how they will survive. And the same is true for us. And so the question for us, I think, is really around the word devoted. I, I, mean, I don't think if you've been here more than a couple times, you probably don't disagree with anything I've said so far. Is church important? Yeah. But it's not like a movie theater where we show up when it's convenience for us. Are we devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the prayers, to the breaking of bread? The question for us is, are we willing to sacrifice, money, opportunity, personal freedom for the kingdom of God because this is what God is doing in the world and we are going all in. 
on what God is all in for. The primacy of worship. Secondly, secondly in this passage, the uncommon commitment to care. Um, says this, verses 30, 43 and following. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions uh, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Does this make anybody nervous? <laughs> selling property so that everybody in the church has what they need. Well, let me explain an important point when you're reading the Bible. There is a difference between the, when the Bible is being prescriptive and when the Bible is being descriptive. Okay, the prescriptive passages in the Bible where God is saying, this is what you are commanded to do. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Uh, these are prescriptive, but large portions of the Bible are descriptive, describing what God has done. Uh, most of the book of Acts is descriptive. You know, many historical books, like when, if you're reading through First and Second Kings and you read that Elijah raised the prophets, or the, the widow's son, you shouldn't therefore expect that, like that's a normative thing that's going to happen regularly in the life of, of the church. And so what do, the, what do these descriptive passages do? Well, they, they hold out for us by way of principle what we should expect um, as the normal practice in the church. And so this passage is describing the way that the early Christians sold property and gave uh, the proceeds to those who were in need to show us the principle that the church is a community of generosity. It is an uncommonly caring community. The early church's life together was uncommon in its commitment to care for one another, and so while they did this uh, in a way that is not necessarily binding on us, the principle of radical care for the body continues to guide the church today. I have a friend that's a pastor who um, says that when he t whenever he teaches about giving and money in his church, uh, he always says, we are a church where everybody gives and nobody goes hungry. And I think that's a beautiful way to talk about just the radical nature of if you have needs, we're here. We are here to provide for you. We are, here. We are radical in the way that we care for one another. But this is about so much more than just money. It says that they had all things in common. They spent time together, uh, both in, in kind of structured gatherings on Sunday morning, but in their homes throughout the week. One of the things that we're discovering in a church, even a small church the size of, of our church, is that uh, it is very, very difficult to figure out how to plan community for our church. Um, Jason and I talk about this for hours, like, well, how are we going to do community groups? And then we, we make a decision, and then we immediately find out it was wrong. Uh, but what we're also discovering is that community doesn't happen without putting something on the calendar. Interesting observation, I was talking with some friends um, about how do you do community groups in, in your church. And uh, one, one guy said, you know, it's only Anglo churches that have to do community groups. Um, Hispanic churches, black churches, people just hang out together. But Anglos need to put times and dates on the calendar if we're going to show up for each other. It doesn't happen otherwise. What Acts 2 is describing is the difficult gospel-driven work of church unity. Because the reality is that community looks really great 
on paper or on a TV show, but it's very difficult in real life. The unity of the church is important. It is crucial. Jesus hammered this point home repeatedly. And what this is describing in Acts 2 is the day-in, day-out work of showing up for each other, of paying attention to each other's needs, of offering encouragement for uh, one another, of, of letting people know when you have needs, of accepting help from, uh, from them, of asking for clarification when somebody offends you, of having hard conversations, of asking for and offering forgiveness, because community looks great on paper, but it's much more difficult in real life. This is why I think it is so helpful that um, this study of resilient disciples noted that resilient disciples both aspire to community and recognize the difficulty of it. You cannot be involved in a church for much longer uh, than a month or so before you realize there's, there's all kinds of dysfunction <laughs> in every church. Or you could put it like this, as has often been said, if you were to find a perfect church, the last thing you should do is go there because then you'll be there and you'll ruin the perfection of that church. <laughs> the ideal of community can become the enemy of actual community. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer um, said this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Do you see what he's saying? We can have this ideal sense of this is what community ought to be, and it is good and right and true, and yet no community has ever lived up to it, and so you despise your actual community because it's not an ideal community. That is the world that we live in, friends. It's called the church. Last week, um, several of us from our church went to the Awaken Conference in San Diego, um, and uh, Francis Chan, um, I guess, is a, is a very well-known Christian uh, speaker, and he was one of the main speakers, and he was kind of just hammering this point about the importance of the unity of the church, and it was really, I mean, it was true, it was good, it was very, inspiring, but he, he was using, the, he kind of told this story of partnering with an organization in overseas, like missions, context, and they're partnering with this other organization when they realized that there was actually a deep and important theological difference between the two groups. And at first they were kind of sad and said, I guess we can't work together anymore, but he said, no, the, 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 the gospel trumps this, we can work together even though we don't agree with each other. Um, and we're not just going to ignore our differences and say they don't matter. They matter, and yet we can still work together. And it was beautiful, and it was encouraging and inspiring. And yet part of me was thinking, but you're talking about like three weeks a year when you get on a plane and probably are surrounded by photographers and doing this kind of celebrity... I, I don't know, let's not be overly cynical, but the hard work of community is not three weeks out of the year when we're in a foreign country. The hard work of community is every week, week in and week out, of doing life together as a church, finding ways to um, love one another when we disappoint each other, of showing up together, of being underwhelmed, of spending time together, um, of having the hard conversations when we've offended or been misunderstood, 
let, let me just say this um, for myself. I love you. I love being your pastor, and I am going to fail you. <laughs> Unless this is your first time, I probably already have failed you. <laughs> but if you've been here for more than a couple months, I have failed you, and I'm sorry. And the only thing I can promise is that I will always apologize. Several people in the past couple weeks can attest to that. I, <laughs> I will always apologize. But the reality for me, and I'm a little bit fearful to say this, but I am kind of the most visible sinner in this church. And so when I mess up, you're going to notice it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish I could apologize specifically in advance. I'm sorry. I love you. This is what it looks like to do life together. The church is the bride of Christ and community is messy and Jesus hammered this point home over and over, the importance of the unity of the church. And uh, one of the last things Jesus did before he went to the cross is he prayed for the church and he prayed for you and he prayed that we might be one. And in John 17, um, he, he prays this prayer. John 17, verse 22, he's praying to the Father and he says this, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that's you, that they may be one even as we are one. That they may be one even as we are one. Even as. Even as we are one, Jesus is saying. Not that they may be one kind of like we are one. <laughs> that they may be one even as we are one. Why do you think Jesus hammered the unity of the church uh, so much, it's because it doesn't just happen. You know, uh, we, sometimes we talk about the organic fallacy. The organic fallacy is that good things just happen on their own organically. Community does not happen organically on its own. Jesus keeps talking about this because unity uh, takes real work. How is that even possible? I mean, it sounds great that we would be united even as Jesus and the Father are one. How is that possible, though? Well, notice the first part of what he says in verse 22. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that God the Father shines on God the Son, God the Son, Jesus actually gives to you. Somebody said to me uh, this week that one of the tragedies of life is that we long for glory. Uh, we were created to experience both from God and from other human beings glory and affirmation and beauty and kindness. That's not the tragedy. The tragedy is that we believe that glory is a zero-sum game. We believe that if I give you glory, that I then have less of it, and so I need to hold on to it. And so a lot of us um, come into community. The struggle of community is that we enter into community. You always enter into a new relationship with hope, with optimism, with, with the sense that like maybe this is the person that will affirm me and make me feel special and important and you enter into community without hope but that hope before long turns into expectation and uh, and the expectation that a community will give me glory uh, will always will always let me down but friends glory is not a zero-sum game 
We exist in community longing for glory from others, but we are reluctant to give it away. But in God's economy, glory, honor, beauty, love are not zero-sum games. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They are multiplied through giving them away. Jesus prays, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Human community tends to dissolve into chaos of one variety or another. But in light of the gospel, true community is possible because it is shaped by a totally different dynamic. There is an external source of life because the one who, who is so glorious that to see him in his glory uh, would be like witnessing a nuclear explosion thousands of times over. The radiance of his glory is poured into the community of the church. And so as a church, as a community, internally and externally, we have so much to offer because it is not dependent upon us. I don't have less glory by affirming you and vice versa. It's actually multiplied and it grows. But how does that work? How can that be real? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever had somebody that you needed, that you were depending on, let you down? Of course you have, haven't you? I mean, we all have. But Jesus, incredibly mere hours after praying this prayer, you know, isn't it incredible to, to realize that even in his, in his humanity, even Jesus needed community? And part of the reason that he gathered 12 disciples around him was, was because he needed human community. And so on the night that he was betrayed, as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he brings his disciples with him, his closest friends, and he says to them, you stay here and pray for me. It's mind-blowing to think Jesus needs a human being to pray for him. Jesus needs community. And Jesus leaves them and says, you stay here and pray uh, for me, and I'm going to go over there. And he comes back, and they've fallen asleep on him. And he wakes them up. It happens over and over and over again. They failed him. Jesus was let down by those he needed. And so Jesus goes to the cross utterly and completely alone. Everyone has turned their back on him. And as he suffers in solitude, Jesus takes upon himself the darkness of our sin. The tragedy of sin is that it tears community apart and Jesus takes it all upon himself. And in doing so, it says that he actually is unleashing a new power into the world. Jesus said, it is better for you that I leave and ascend into heaven because I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. And so you have now the power of God not hidden away in a temple behind a curtain that you can ever access, but actually in you if you are a follower of Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and binds us together. The gospel changes everything and the gospel makes true community possible. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us just briefly with the expectation of God's action, the expectation of God's action, the result, what's the result of the community that lives like this? It says in verse 46, and 40, well, let me just read verse 47. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people, 
the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. When the world sees people getting along who have no human business getting along together and acting as one and day by day in each other's house and giving up themselves uh, in sacrifice to serve one another, the world says, I don't understand these people, but God must be in this somehow. And so as a church, we have to live with the expectation that God is going to work through us and he, and he is bringing people to himself because he is at work in us. And friends, sometimes I worry that we theologize away the expectation that God is actually at work in our midst and that he is going to use us to grow his kingdom. Yes, of course, when we pray, we pray, God, I'm not just asking you to kind of do what I want. And so God, only answer my prayer if it's according to your will. And yet we have to pray with the expectation that God is using us We have to pray with hope that God is with us and he is uh, in us and he is for us and he is using us. And we're not being biblical if we're being cynical by prejudging God's lack of action to avoid disappointment. The reality is that we look to God with hope and we have no idea what he's doing, but we hope in him and sometimes we're disappointed because he's not doing what we wanted him to do, and yet we deal with our disappointment in light of the gospel. Friends, listen, God is at work in the world. The gospel is true, and he is bringing, not the church in general, yes, he is, but this church, Resurrection OC, together in order to accomplish his mission in South Orange County. Not us alone, of course, but he's using us. I know we're a small church. We cannot underestimate the power of what God would do if, I don't know, 50, 75 people began to work together, to pray, to look with expectation that God is actually in, at work in our midst, that he's going to do something through us. Next week, we're going to challenge you to pray that God would do something specific and big in our church. I'll tell you more next week. Let me say this. You are a friendly church. You are a very friendly church. I love that I hear when people visit our church, no pressure, by the way, for today, (laughs) that you are a very friendly church. You as a church over the last three years have rallied in, um, I would say, a handful of maybe small-ish and yet incredibly significant ways to come around side a few families in need. I mean, there are families that would be in a world of hurt without you in their lives. It's incredible what you've done. But Resurrection OC, I wonder if maybe God is leading us to take the next step, stepping into hopefulness, of not saying, I don't know, like, he might not do anything, so we just don't pray. But of banking on the God who shows up. In a world that is pursuing anti-community, you have sacrificed yourselves for the good of each other. Imagine a place where everybody is honored, where everyone's needs are met, where individuals are cared for and individuals make sacrifice sacrifices for each other because the gospel is true.
and everyone flourishes as a result. I'll finish with this. I heard uh, somebody sent me a, um, a link to a trailer for a documentary called The Landfill Harmonic this week. And it's incredible. It's the story of a small town in Paraguay, one of the poorest slums in Latin America where 2,500 people live on a mountain of garbage. And one day, there's a whole community of people that make their living plowing through the garbage and finding things they can sell. And one day, a man saw a piece of garbage that he thought looked like a violin, and so he took it and he built a violin out of it. And having done that, he found something else that was bigger, and it looked like a cello, and he built a cello. And then they needed a bass, and they even figured out a way to make horns. And they had all these instruments, and so they began to teach children to play these instruments. Eventually, they had a whole orchestra out of tin cans and hammers and wood pallets and baking trays and forks. And then they thought, well, what should we do? And so the children in this town began to uh, put on concerts. And the Landfill Harmonic uh, was created, and it's just grown. They've been featured on NPR and NBC in 60 Minutes, and they've traveled to the United States. And the tagline for the trailer of this documentary is this, the world sends us garbage and we send back music. And friends, that is a beautiful picture of what the church is like. None of us is that individually spectacular. And yet God is taking individual pieces of whatever like us, and he is filling the world with beautiful music. What would it look like for us to live as the church with the hope that God might actually do something incredibly ordinary and yet spectacular through us. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we long for your glory and we long to see you do um, your incredible work that only you can do in our world. And yet, God, we've also um, lived for so long in a culture that says, don't get your hopes up. But you call us people of hope. God, we don't want to be naive about the challenges of the world that we live in. We want to have eyes wide open. And yet maybe the one thing that we have to offer South Orange County is hope. God, would you make Resurrection OC a church that offers hope to this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.